Which do you guys think was more interesting tonight, the State of the Union or the Texas primaries? Texas. Texas. But I'm, I'm very biased. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, what did Biden say that was new tonight? I think the most interesting thing about the State of the Union was that Manchin sat with Mitt Romney. Okay, but Joe Manchin expressing his friendliness with Republicans is even less new than anything <laughs> Biden said tonight. Yeah, but it was like still a cute moment. Hello and welcome to this late night edition of the 538 Politics Podcast. I'm Galen Druk and we are wrapping up a split screen evening between President Biden's State of the Union speech and the Texas primaries, which are the first primaries of the 2022 midterm election cycle. Of course, there's another section on the split screen, the ongoing Russian invasion of Ukraine, which Biden addressed first and foremost in his speech this evening. Biden delivered the speech from a historically unpopular position. Only Trump had a lower approval rating at this point in his first term, and he made a sort of a bid for a reset. Meanwhile, the primaries served as a preview for the kind of fights that are going to play out within the two parties over the coming months. Progressives and the establishment on the Democratic side, and then more and less Trump-aligned Republicans on the GOP side. We're going to try to recap both of those things, and everyone on this podcast today was paying different levels of attention to different events at different times. So we're going to try to piece everything together amongst the four of us. Here with me to do that is politics editor Sarah Frostenson. Hey, Sarah. Hey, y'all. Also with us is politics reporter Alex Samuels. Hey, Alex. Hey, Galen. And senior elections analyst Nathaniel Rakich. Hey, Nathaniel. Hey, Galen. Let's start things off with the State of the Union address, which maybe has broader appeal, was addressed to the whole nation, and then we will get into some of the quirks of Texas politics and the inter-party fighting. How was the speech that Biden gave tonight different from the speech that he gave back in 2021? Sarah, kick us off. Yeah, so obviously the situation right now with Russia's invasion of Ukraine was front and center. And it was something that Biden's administration had also been very forthcoming in in the recent days here saying that they were tweaking the speech to adjust for that. And so Biden wasn't really able to have it be as much of a setting agenda as he could in that first speech uh, last year. He did mention his unity agenda. And as we'll talk about, there were a whole host of issues he ran through as being important to both Um, Congress writ large, and then just Democrats to push through. But given the severity of the situation in Ukraine, the bulk of at least the first 10 minutes of his speech needed to focus on that situation and America's response to it, and definitely lended a certain sense of gravity that would not have necessarily been as present um, without that. Yeah, I think I would describe this speech as a lot more humbled than the 2021 speech. You know, some of the the biggest, the meatiest portions of the address were focused on really like bread and butter issues, things that don't necessarily have as much of a partisan divide or have yet to develop one. So like 
Um, you know, he focused on his moonshot cure cancer. He focused on curing the opioid ap- epidemic, as opposed to last time when he was still a newly elected president in the middle of his honeymoon. He still had lots of political capital, and he was talking all about his ambitious spending plans and, you know, build that better, which was um, didn't make any appearances tonight. You know, and I think that that difference really reflects the fact that Biden is a much diminished president with a, um, you know, almost a all-time low approval rating. One thing I'd be interesting to see is who actually watched tonight's State of the Union, because I have to assume like not many Republicans were just tuning in to see Biden talk for an hour and a half or however long it is. Um, And as Amelia and I wrote, I I think it was last week or the week before, you know, Democrats particularly have been souring on Biden's presidency since last summer. And this arguably was his best chance to present to the nation, you know, some sort of united front, say that things are getting better with the economy, COVID, the war in Ukraine, whether or not that's true is, you know, to be determined. But it's, you know, it'll be fascinating to see whether this kind of moves the needle with some of the uh, blocks, particularly that have been upset with Biden and his presidency and sort of his, you know, failed uh, legislative agenda since he uh, started office. So I think, Sarah, as you mentioned, Biden really went through a sort of litany of things that he cares about, that Democrats care about. It sort of becomes an almost campaign-style speech at a certain point where he's mentioning drug prices and guns and policing and the Supreme Court, immigration, abortion, you know, goes on and on and on. Two things that sort of opened the speech that may be more dynamic issues than some of the other things. Like he didn't even mention Build Back Better because that really seems stuck in Congress. Two of the more dynamic issues are potentially Russia's invasion of Ukraine and COVID-19. So during last year's speech, the chamber had a significantly reduced number of lawmakers in it. People were wearing masks. Of course, you know, even Nancy Pelosi and Vice President Kamala Harris sitting behind uh, the president last year were wearing masks. People weren't wearing masks this year. And Biden basically said, you know, we're moving on from the majority of the restrictions and this is a different stage of the pandemic. And then also, this was the first time that he was addressing the nation in a State of the Union style speech as like a newly wartime president in Europe. Um, Are those two things issues that are liable to change perceptions of him here at home? Well, you know, that's an interesting question, Galen. I think right now, similar to Biden's overall approval rating, um, his handling of the pandemic has deteriorated in Americans' eyes. And we are entering this new phase of the pandemic where, you know, at this point, the variants of Delta, Omicron are kind of subsiding in the background. And it's this question that we've been debating for the last two years, but what does it look like to get back to normal? What is Democrats' plan around that? Um, Biden and Democrats have received a lot of criticism for not moving fast enough to open up economies in the U.S., um, different, you know, Blue state governors have in recent weeks relaxed mask mandates. They've done more to open up schools. And I think as you were pointing out, just given 
the very physical differences in tonight's State of the Union versus last year's address. People weren't wearing masks, you know, a requirement that they relaxed today in Congress in preparation of the speech. That's a very symbolic movement from the Biden administration to kind of suggest that we're turning the corner on COVID-19. And, you know, there's a fair question to the extent to which that's actually possible or is happening, but it certainly seems as if the message that Biden wanted to give to voters um, and the American people tonight is that we are rounding the corner. Democrats are taking this seriously. He focused a lot about education, the importance of having schools being opened, and about the economy. He did mention inflation by name. He talked about the ways in which he wanted to combat that. He did a lot to try to celebrate, you know, low unemployment rates, and we'll see how receptive American people are to that. Um, But he certainly, I think, in tonight is trying to give Democrats a different way forward on COVID-19. Because remember, when he first, you know, became... When he first became president, that was one of his best issues. And as his approval ratings have waned on handling COVID-19, his overall approval rating has waned. So if he can, you know, move the dial on how Americans think about how he's handled the pandemic, that should be able to help him overall. Yeah. And on the question of Ukraine, um, you know, I think obviously it's it's too early to say the conflict is extremely fluid um it could be over in a week or at least you know the american media could move on within a week or this could be something that's with us for for many months um and the united states could get more involved it could get less involved and i think all of these things are going to have a big bearing on perceptions of biden's handling of of the crisis and also whether it's kind of a high enough priority for americans to shift their overall views on biden based on this one issue um i think that he has had a kind of just on paper he's had a strong few days on the issue you know he um, reiterated tonight a pledge not to use um, U.S. troops in Ukraine although he actually took a pretty firm stance saying that um, you know the U.S. wouldn't stand for Russian incursions against NATO countries and then um, also of course a few days ago he um imposed pretty harsh sanctions on Russia, which is very popular. Um, And then tonight's moment, I think maybe the most um, memorable moment from the speech today was um, the bipartisan applause for the Ukrainian ambassador, who was obviously very emotional. And so I think that these are are all things that um, reflect well on Biden's leadership on the issue. The thing is, you know, are perceptions of Biden so polarized um, just in the nature that we've always seen, you know, along party lines, that that won't make a difference? Um, or is this something that actually could break through those partisan lines? And I think Alex's earlier point about like who was watching tonight is the big question here, too. If it was just Democrats, that's ar- arguably, you know, as Alex pointed out, her and Amelia found that support for Biden has waned among Democrats, but that's like the smallest part of the problem of his larger issues. One thing I wanted to add on COVID is there was an Associated Press NORC poll that came out, I believe it was earlier this week, late last week, and they were asking Americans their thoughts on mask mandates. And actually, 77% of Democrats said that they still want said mandates in place. So it is fascinating to me that I don't know if it was Congress, Biden, whomever decided that, okay, tonight's the night where we're not going to wear masks at all, because really it's Republicans who have overwhelmingly said that they're not in favor of mask mandates. So if Biden's goal here was to appeal to 
Democrats, um, particularly on COVID, and that things are getting better. I just think that was an interesting way to go about it, considering that a majority of the Democratic base still wants some sort of COVID precaution in place. Right. It definitely seemed if both in COVID, as Alex is highlighting, and then in Biden's comments, which were a pretty emphatic, like, you know, hey, we should fund the police, not defund the police, um, taking strong stances on things that have certainly been, um, I don't know if divisive is the right word, but polarizing within the Democratic Party. He definitely seemed to hew more towards the middle tonight, um, as Nathaniel was mentioning earlier about kind of overall strategy and tone and differences from the first year too. It's funny, Sarah, did you say he mentioned police reform and immigration during his speech? Yes, he mentioned both of those. Which, like, why? Like, if you're not, if, if you're not going to mention Build Back Better, which is like, arguably, still kind of chugging along, why would you mention police reform and immigration when I haven't heard anything about that in months? And I think it was September when they said police reform was dead. Right. I think on that, it was it was a hodgepodge of issues, as you're saying, and not really um, any consideration to feasibility on a lot of different things. Well, I have to assume that the reason that Build Back Better wasn't mentioned is because it already failed and they don't want to sort of beat a dead horse. They did, Biden did talk about policies, social spending programs that I think he still hopes to pass, but of course they're going to have to be packaged or branded another way in order to get Joe Manchin to vote for them because he's already said that he won't vote for Build Back Better. So I guess that's probably the reason we didn't hear it by name, perhaps an embarrassing defeat to bring up in a State of the Union address. Oh, but he did bring up um, election reform, the the Freedom to Vote Act and the John Lewis Act, which was, I think, a very... uh, embarrassing defeat for Democrats. And yet he brought that up, which I I thought was interesting as well. Although maybe something that divides the two parties, but doesn't divide the parties internally, right? That's more of a, you Mm. can point to Republicans Mm. and say, you prevented this from happening. You didn't vote to sort of shore up our elections. Whereas Build Back Better was an internal party division. That's a good point. I guess, I mean, you can also say that, you know, by not abolishing the filibuster, Mansion and Cinema doomed the voting rights stuff. But but I guess they, they do have that loophole where they can be like, well, we support the bill, but not the rule change. I mean, one thing I was curious about is Biden came into office as the the sort of, or pitched himself as a unity president. He seemed to, in some ways, during his very lengthy, relatively recent press conference, say, I was a little too optimistic about unity. And in reality, it's not happening. But tonight, it seemed like he was back on that message in terms of his unity agenda, which was addressing cancer and heroin overdoses, uh, elder care, things like that, making things in America, addressing Ukraine, you know, what he said about securing the border and immigration and fund the police. These were all things that the vast majority of lawmakers in the chamber applauded for across the aisle. Is this a renewed pitch at unity? Is this just sort of what makes voters like you? And so it's a good message to portray to the nation. What's going on? Right. So, right. The unity agenda had four prongs. First, beat the opioid epidemic. Second, let's take on mental health, especially about children um, and education and how things have been turned down from the pandemic in the last two years. Third, support our veterans. And then fourth, end cancer. 
that's kind of a moonshot in particular, the last one. Um, cancer is a huge thing, and we've talked about ending it for um, decades now. And so I think you're right, Galen, that like it was an attempt tonight to kind of try to strike um, a, t- a tone around unity, to speak to issues that, as you said, Republican lawmakers, Democratic lawmakers both applauded. But I think as Alex was getting at earlier, what was missing from this as, um, you know, politics fiends who kind of cover this and live this each day was that not a lot of this had been really like broadcast as Democratic priorities before tonight. And so then it's not really clear what the path is to move on any of this. And I think that's kind of what we're struggling with when we talk about the feasibility of this. And, you know, it's fine for everyone to clap about ending cancer, but is that really going to be something that Congress moves to now act on? And I think that's where the skepticism lies. And something Amelia and I found in our reporting and something that just political scientists told us over and over is that, you know, a more realistic, pragmatic message like, hey, COVID's probably going to be around for a couple more years or so. So like get used to it. This is the new normal. Something like that, like that's not going to energize voters. Um, But at the same time, being more optimistic and saying, you know, things will get better, you know, if they don't get better, then Biden has to answer for why that is the case. Um, so it's kind of a catch-22 as president. And I think, you know, Biden is in, in the unfortunate situation of leading the country while we're in the middle of a pandemic. So he's trying to strike that tone of optimism. Um, but unfortunately, I, I just think if he was more kind of realistic about the state of where the nation is right now, that's not something that would energize his base, especially as we're seeing Democrats, you know, really sour on his presidency, Republican sour on his presidency. I think he kind of needed to have some sort of message of like, things will get better. Yeah. And I think, you know, across the board, it was, there were optimistic messages that didn't seem always rooted in reality. And, you know, disagree with me if you want to, but even on the issue of inflation, which American voters say is very important to them and is increasing at a rate not seen in 40 years, part of the way he planned to address inflation was just building more things and making more things in America, which is popular. If you poll people, they want to make more things in America, and they like that as a way of addressing inflation. Realistically, that's not the kind of thing, you know, just like rebuilding our semiconductor infrastructure and an ability to like make chips in America isn't going to change inflation for Americans overnight or probably even this year. So yeah, I guess ultimately it's a it's a it's a political speech. What else is new? The sky's blue. Right. No, but I mean, you know, we were earlier talking about how a lot of his speech really wasn't targeted for parts of the Democratic base and were more kind of a, you know, him tacking to the center, to the middle of the country. I do think one exception to that was some of the language he used around corporations and that being responsible for inflation and some of the supply chain issues. But as our colleague um, Santul Nakar wrote earlier for 538 this month. Um, that just doesn't check out. That's not contributing to inflation in the U.S., but has been a very popular um, talking point among um, members of the, the left wing of the Democratic Party and also polls well, like Americans don't generally speaking, you know, love corporations having big profits. But I thought that was an interesting political um, tactic from him as well this evening. All right. So that is a bit of an overview of what Biden said tonight in his State of the Union address. Of course, there was a response from Republicans that was given by Republican Governor Kim Reynolds of Iowa. 
I don't think we have time to cover that in as much depth because we got to move on to Texas. But just briefly, did it give us some sort of broader sense of how Republicans plan on making their case in the midterms this fall? Reynolds definitely focused a lot on education, the importance of keeping schools open. She was one of the first governors to actually end the state of emergency around COVID-19 and was able to kind of speak to that, speak to living through inflation. She has a working class background um, that has made her popular in the state and kind of enables her to identify more um, with voters who might be struggling now. And so I think we will see Republicans continue to kind of lean into that messaging moving into the midterm particularly um, around COVID and kind of the harms of the past two years. That seems to be fertile ground for Republicans. Yeah, I mean, that the opening message was Biden is bringing us back to the 1970s, both in terms of Putin feeling empowered to recreate the Soviet Union and inflation. So that, you know, of course, if Ukraine remains in the headlines and Russian aggression is still at the top of minds, of American voters, like, tying those two things together, I guess, could be relatively visceral for people who lived through the 70s, which are, you know, by definition, older voters and people who may be uh, amped up to vote for Republicans anyway. But with that, let's move on. Of course, all of those speeches, all hour and a half plus of them are available. I know that also Democrats gave responses to Biden's uh, State of the Union speech tonight. So um, Three that's all we have ones. for you. We got to move on to Texas. <laughs> Three different ones. <laughs> but of course, if you're interested, I'm sure they're on the internet. All right, let's talk about Texas. But first, today's podcast is brought to you by Shopify. Ready to make the smartest choice for your business? Say hello to Shopify, the global commerce platform that makes selling a breeze. Whether you're starting your online shop, opening your first physical store, or hitting a million orders, Shopify is your growth partner. Sell everywhere with Shopify's all-in-one e-commerce platform and in-person POS system. Turn browsers into buyers with Shopify's best converting checkout, 36% better than other platforms. Effortlessly sell more with Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Did you know Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. and supports global brands like Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen. Join millions of successful entrepreneurs across 175 countries backed by Shopify's extensive support and help resources. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Start your success story today. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash 538. That's the numbers, not the letters. Shopify.com slash 538. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts. Tonight marked the beginning of the 2022 midterm primaries. Of course, this was in Texas. And Alex, you are our resident Texas expert. You are speaking with us from Austin at the moment. And basically, this served as a stage setting 
election for which parts of the two parties might be strongest throughout this primary season. There were these, you know, marquee races in which on the Democratic side, progressives and the establishment were fighting each other. And then on the Republican side, some more and less Trump aligned candidates were fighting each other. Let's begin with perhaps the biggest race, which is for the Republican primary for attorney general. Ken Paxton, the incumbent, is running for re-election, somewhat of a controversial figure, being that he's been investigated for corruption and things like that. And and of course, he's endorsed by Don, he's been endorsed by Donald Trump. What's the outcome of that race tonight? So I think as we've been on this podcast, it actually was just announced that that race will head to a runoff. Uh, Paxton currently is in first place, but I think he has, you know, roughly 40 to between 40 and 45 percent of the vote. And I think it's still a toss up who his opponent will be. Um, Right now, George P. Bush, uh, the land commissioner, appears to be leading um, over former Texas Supreme Court Justice Eva Guzman. Um, And then in fourth place, we have Louis Gohmert, a semi-famous congressman in this state, uh, if you haven't heard of him, a very big Trump loyalist. So yeah, I mean, Paxton acknowledged this reality in many uh, many a radio interviews where he said, basically, you know, if I go to a runoff, it's going to be against George P. So I'm not super surprised by that uh, result tonight. Um, What I will say is, you know, we have been monitoring Trump's endorsements in Texas. Trump, of course, did endorse Paxton, even though folks like Gohmert obviously have a good relationship with Trump as well. So it's always just, you know, fascinating to me whether Trump endorsed candidates can't avoid a runoff or not. Um, And clearly that, you know, just wasn't the case for Paxton tonight. But I do think, you know, he is still the favorite going into uh, the May runoffs. Yeah, I uh, before I came to 538, I focused on down ballot races like attorney general, secretary of state and this stuff. I love to see these races getting more attention. Galen, you calling it the top race of the night made my day. I thought I was going to say but the listen, governor's race. I, was this, <laughs> I did too. Wait, I, there, was no, no but, but there was no question. There was no question in the governor's race, right? We knew that Greg Abbott right. was going to win and he wasn't going to a runoff. And we knew that Beto O'Rourke was going to win his primary and won't be the governor of Texas. So we can, we can stop covering that right now. Indeed. Indeed. But I do think that the the this the ag's race is a little like it's it's basically that goose is cooked like i think you can basically give all of louis gohmert's votes for instance right on over to paxton in the runoff and and that'll be enough to put him over 50 percent you mean to say that the good bush name isn't worth anything in texas anymore I mean, so you kid, but like, I do think it is worth taking a moment to step back and be like, wow, if we had gone back to, you know, 2000 and I mean, even 2015 um, and, and told ourselves that, you know, a guy facing two scandals who's been indicted um, and has the support of Donald Trump because he tried to overturn an election um, is going to wipe the floor with, um, you know, the scion of the Bush family in a Republican primary. Um, I think that is reflects quite a bit on how much the Republican Party has changed um, in, a, in a short period of time. George P. Bush, for those who don't know, is the son of former Florida Governor Jeb Bush. And one thing I just wanted to mention, though, for listeners is, you know, one of the key reasons why the attorney general race is at the top of the ballot this year in Texas 
is because of the prevalence of um, the big lie and efforts to overturn the election and how those candidates have done really well, not only in Texas, but everywhere in the U.S. And we'll be tracking that in more depth this primary season. But one thing in particular for Texas, based on the research um, of Nathaniel and then Gene um, here at 538, was of the 151 Texas Republicans running for either House or governor, we didn't look at um, you know state level or lower down ballot level races. We were only to, able to identify eight candidates who had said publicly that they thought Biden had won. Eight out of 151 for something that shouldn't really be that much of a subject of debate. And as you know, we were talking here in the AG race, one of those candidates. Um, Granted, not in this tally, but would have been Bush. And look, he's not even close necessarily to winning here in the runoff now um, in May. All right. So I guess perhaps pour one out for the Bushes in Texas. Uh, but we will follow that race. Who knows? You never, you never know. It's an election. Voters are going to have to decide. It's getting late. I'm also delirious at this point. So I'm just saying words. But before we move on to Democrats, let's take one moment to talk about the governor's race and maybe any other congressional races that that sort of pit different parts of the party together. I said it wasn't worth talking about, but ultimately Greg Abbott is not going to face a runoff. It seemed like he was working really hard during the past couple years to avoid a serious primary challenger. He was once upon a time, I think, seen as more of a moderate within Texas politics. And, you know, he's taken some pretty uh, conservative stances over the past couple of years. Can we ultimately say that, you know, had he not done that, he would have had a more serious primary challenger and might be headed towards a runoff right now? Like, was basically, did that seem to be his plan and was it successful? I mean, I think he had, at least I thought going into tonight, he had some serious, you know, f- you know formidable challengers in the form of Don Huffines and Alan West. But, you know, they both arguably took Abbott to, you know, further right than maybe Abbott was more comfortable with or than Abbott has done in the past. And the Texas Tribune has written a number of pieces just on, you know, how Abbott wasn't really acknowledging their candidacies in a way, but was signing bills into law that were really on par with what Huffines and West were talking about. So I thought that was interesting. And then just the sheer number of Republicans who lined up to challenge Abbott, like that that says something. I'm not sure exactly what it means, but you would think if he was, you know, Abbott's relatively popular in the state among Republican voters. So it's interesting to me that so many Republican candidates lined up to challenge him, you know, a third term incumbent or going into his third term, you know, endorsed by Trump colossal war chest. It was just fascinating to me how many people thought that they could beat him this time around. All right. Well, it looks like ultimately Abbott is not going to a runoff with a pretty healthy lead. Let's turn to the 8th district in Texas, which the primary, the Republican primary there sort of set up a a bit of a conflict between Republican leadership, congressional leadership, and the more activist base. And who ended up winning? So in this race, we still don't have a call there, um, but it looks like basically the main question is going to be whether it goes to a runoff or whether um, Marcus Luttrell, who's the candidate who was supported by um, the Republican establishment, will win outright. So right now, Luttrell has 54% of the vote and Christian Collins has 22% of the vote. Um, Collins was endorsed by Ted Cruz. He was endorsed by the Freedom Caucus, which of course is the, the kind of 
Tea Party-ish wing of the House. He was endorsed by Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene. Um, so he, he definitely had the support of the kind of fringier elements of the party. Um, that said, you know, both candidates were very conservative, very Trump-aligned. Um, both of them said, for example, that they would have voted to not to certify the results of the 2020 election, um, following up on Sarah's point earlier about the big lie. Um, so it did kind of become a bit of a, a proxy war between um, two sides of the Republican Party. But, um, you know, I think regardless, um, this district, which is very conservative, is going to send a very conservative member to Congress. All right, let's turn to Democrats. And I think it's fair to say that the marquee race uh, amongst Democrats in terms of pitting different parts of the parties together uh, was the 28th district, which was Jessica Cisneros, who was running a primary campaign against incumbent Henry Cuellar, who had defeated her previously um, in a primary. But it doesn't seem clear whether or not he'll do it again. So where where is the race right now? How close is it? Um, what can we say about whether, of course, Cisneros is the progressive challenger and Cuellar is the establishment incumbent, how that's going to shake out. Yeah, Galen, as we kind of record this podcast, this is the one race that I think is still truly unknown to us. And maybe folks who are listening in the morning will have a better idea. But right now, Cisneros has 49% of the vote and Cuellar has 46% of the vote. Um, and they've been very slow at counting the ballots here. Um, but I think one good indicator for Cuellar is that um, Star County, which is along the Mexico border, which is um, the area of the district that Cuellar is strong in, um, they haven't reported any votes at all. Um, on the other hand, um, some of the counties around San Antonio, like Bejar County, um, still has a lot of the vote to account to count as well, and that's a better area for Cisneros. So um, still a lot of uncertainty there. In addition, this race could go to a runoff because, as I mentioned, neither candidate has 50% of the vote. There's actually a third candidate who's currently pulling 5%, um, which, of course, is a very small amount. But in this case, it could be enough to deny either candidate a majority, in which case this race would go to a runoff in May and we would have two more months, basically, um, of, of this race. One thing that's fascinating to me is even if Cisneros loses this race, you can arguably say that tonight was a pretty good night for Texas progressives, at least in certain races. I mean, even if she loses, she's going to come close, I would imagine. And then you have Greg Kassar running in Texas's 35th district, so that's the new district, um, kind of in the Austin area. He's very progressive handily won the Democratic primary there. Beto O'Rourke, one might argue, is progressive, handily won the Democratic primary for governor. And I'm sure there's a number of other races that I'm missing as well. But I've just been interested at how many progressive Democrats in the state are doing surprisingly you know, well in a state like Texas. Yeah, Kassar crushed it. He's winning 62% of the vote right now. And this was a race. Oh, and Breaking news, everyone. Literally, the New York Times just uh, changed to call the race for Greg Kassar in the 35th district as I was pulling that up. So very exciting. We're bringing this news to you on the 538 podcast, like probably several hours after it really <laughs> happened. But, um, but yes, that, that I think, you know, that was expected, I think, to be a competitive race. This is an open seat, blue seat, very valuable, obviously, for ambitious Democrats and um, the kind of progressive AOC-endorsed candidate um, won it handily. The biggest thing to me is I think 
we're going to see conflicting signs tonight in the primaries. And that's because they're primaries. And so what I mean by that is, as Alex and Nathaniel were talking about just now, you know, progressives have done actually really well tonight in Democratic primaries. We still don't know between Cisneros and Cuellar who will win in the 28th, um, but it's going to be a close race no matter what. But at the same time, we're seeing, you know, a even further shift to the right among Republicans in the state. And I think that just kind of maybe speaks more um, to how polarized our politics are in both parties and that being reflected tonight and that you're going to see divergent trends. So like Southern Texas, both perhaps shift more towards Republicans, but then also maybe elect a progressive candidate. And that's not necessarily incompatible with the other. All right. Well, it is now past midnight, so let's leave things there. Of course, results will continue to come in, and we'll talk about them on future podcasts. And we're also going to continue to look into some longer-term questions that might take time to answer, like preferences amongst Latino voters. Uh, Were Latino voters voting in Republican primaries, particularly in the Rio Grande Valley, after having shifted towards Trump most recently in the 2020 election. We'll also look into you know whether voting laws ultimately ended up shaping which votes got counted. So more things to continue paying attention to as we get more information. But it is late and we're gonna wrap things up for now. So Alex, Nathaniel, and Sarah, thank you so much for staying up late with me. Thanks, Galen. Yes, thank you, Galen. Thanks, Galen. My name is Galen Druk. Tony Chow is in the virtual control room. Emily Vineski is our intern. You can get in touch by emailing us at podcasts at 538.com. You can also, of course, tweet at us with any questions or comments. If you're a fan of the show, leave us a rating or review in the Apple Podcast Store or tell someone about us. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you soon. People who disappear without a trace. The most notorious murder cases in New York. Pure evil. And the most devious killers. There's a Hannibal Lecter feel to him. For chilling true crime stories, follow the True Crime NYC podcast wherever you listen.